Hey, welcome to the Cherry Hills podcast. This fall, we are rejoining and concluding our series in the Gospel of Mark, where we're learning the way of Jesus together. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, everybody. As is our tradition, we are going to have one of our friends, Olivia Hogan, read God's word to us this morning. And when she is finished, we will respond with the words, thanks be to God. A reading from Mark chapter 15. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priest accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? But still, Jesus made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner from the people whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why, what crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him. They twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with his staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. This is the word of the Lord. I was listening to a podcast several years ago called This Cultural Moment. And Mark Sayers, a pastor in Australia, made a statement that still sticks with me. If you're following in your notes, he said, we want the kingdom without the king. We want the kingdom without the king. And what Sayers is getting at was he was defining our culture in the West. Sayers argues that deep within every person... Because every person's created in the image of God, that there's a longing for the kingdom of God to break into the world. Right? We, we long for righteousness and justice. We long for the eradication of human trafficking, racism, hunger, homelessness, abuse. We long for a world with no war, no violence, no more mass shootings. No murder, no hatred, where everyone is valued as an image bearer of God and no one is marginalized. We long for that. 
We also long for the kingdom of God to break into our lives personally. These are just a few examples that I thought about from my own life. I want to live without the anxiety that everyday life brings. I want to experience peace and contentment. I want to live without fear of the unknown. I don't want to live on the roller coaster of emotions based on what others say about me or think about me. I want to know that I am loved for who I am, not what I do. I want my life to mean something, to know that I have a significant role to play in the limited time that I'm given here. I have a desire to experience the kingdom of God in my life. I believe we're all born with that. I want the kingdom of God in my life. I just don't want the king sometimes. Can you identify with that in any area of your life? What what do you long for? You just don't want to give up control. And the reason we do this is we don't like kings. We don't like kings. We want the right to choose what is right and wrong for ourselves. Right? We don't like to be told how to live our lives. We want to command our own world. We don't want to surrender our autonomy, freedom, and choice to someone else. Just look how COVID played out the past few years. We want the authority to rule our own little kingdoms. This desire is as old as the Garden of Eden. We can know God's instructions and we can know how to live. And we know his promises that are so good for us. And we still say, no, thanks, God. I'm going to handle things myself here. I I got this under control. And what we need to know, what we need to know, if you're following in your notes, is it's impossible to experience the kingdom of God without the king. It is impossible. Like, we, we can try. We can try our hardest to control our own little kingdoms, and it will leave us feeling hollow, unfulfilled, unsatisfied, striving in our own power. We will miss the kingdom of God now, and we will certainly miss out on it when Jesus returns, when he comes to renew everything the way it was created to be. The king and his kingdom are a packaged deal. And that's what I hope we can learn today. We're in a series in the gospel of Mark and we're spending time with Jesus, learning how to live the way of Jesus. And as we begin, I want to remind us of one of the reasons Mark wrote this gospel. The gospel is a proclamation of good news and Mark wrote it to the church in Rome. And in the Roman empire, you were expected to worship the emperor, the Caesar as the king of the world. He even called himself the son of God. And this idea of What Mark is writing here in the gospel is he wants these believers in Rome and he wants us to see that Jesus is the king and he is worth our allegiance. This idea of a king is what Mark brings to culmination in our story today. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the gospel of Mark chapter 15. The gospel of Mark chapter 15 is probably about three-fourths of the way back in your Bible It is the second gospel in the New Testament, Matthew, and then Mark. If you don't have a Bible with you, I encourage you to take one from the seat rack in front of you. And Mark chapter 15 can be found on page 828 of those black Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, please take that Bible home with you. We want everybody to have a copy of God's word. And I say this a lot, but I do think it would be beneficial to have a copy of God's word open in front of you so you can take notes or highlight or circle things that stand out to you. 
So we begin chapter 15, verse one. You can follow in your Bibles or on the screen. It says, very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Last week, Luke did a fantastic job of finishing chapter 14. And in that story, Jesus was brought before the religious leaders and throughout the night, they kind of did this sham of a trial and they were trying to find reasons to kill Jesus. And now we transition to chapter 15, where these religious leaders take Jesus to the governor of Judea named Pilate because the Jewish people had no rights to execute anyone. And that's what they're going after. They want Rome to execute Jesus. Right away in chapter 15, there is a new character introduced in the story. It's the first time this character is named in the gospel of Mark. His name is Pilate. He was from a town called Pontus, and he's sometimes referred to as Pontius Pilate. He was the governor of the province of Judea. So I want to put a map on the screen just so you can see this is a real place. And this really happened. This is Judea. You can see Jerusalem is circled as the capital. This area of Judea is where Pilate was the governor from the year 26 to 36 when our story is taking place. He's not Jewish. He was Roman and he held supreme judicial authority over the region. Now, one of the significant things we need to know about Pilate and being governor of Judea is it afforded him some benefits. He was concerned about his wealth, his power, and his privilege. And if you're following in your notes, his goal, his main goal was to keep the peace. If he didn't keep the peace, he could lose his position as governor and maybe even lose his life at the hands of the emperor. So the religious leaders are standing before Pilate at about 6 a.m., very early in the morning, with Jesus bound as their prisoner. Now let's read verse two together in the first gray box on your notes. Are you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. Now, what we need to keep in mind here is Pilate's not asking Jesus a theological question, right? The religious leaders did that in chapter 14 that we studied last week. Pilate is not asking, are you the prophesied Messiah from the Hebrew scriptures, from the Old Testament? Pilate is not asking that. Pilate doesn't care about that. Rome doesn't care about that. They just don't want any uprisings. What Rome cares about is any king that could threaten the emperor. So what Pilate asked when he asked, are you the king of the Jews? He's asking, are you in any way, shape, or form a political leader? Are you a political leader in any way? That's all he cares about. So if you're following in your notes, Pilate wants to know if Jesus is a king like Caesar, like the emperor. And Jesus responds, is you have said so. And in the original language, the emphasis is placed on the word you. You have said it yourself. It's an affirmative answer. Now there was more likely uh, additional conversation that took place between Jesus and Pilate than what Mark records. And the reason I can say that is because the three other gospels tell this same story and they tell it a bit differently based on who they were writing to. And in the gospel of John chapter 18, 
There's an interaction recorded between Jesus and Pilate, and this is what we're told in that. Pilate asked the same question, are you the king of the Jews? And that's where we pick up in verse 36. It says, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Every side, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So Jesus is is affirming Pilate's question. He says, I am a king, but I am not the kind of king that you are thinking of. And at this point, things are beginning to get very confusing for Pilate. The story continues in verse three. It says, the chief priest accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. Pilate is looking for ways to free Jesus. We need to know this. He's looking for ways to free Jesus, but he is between a rock and a hard place. In the gospel of Luke chapter 23, some of the things that Jesus is accused of is not paying taxes to Rome and that he is the Messiah, a king. He is being accused of leading a political uprising and he made no reply. Now, Pilate was used to prisoners wailing and protesting their innocence. Many slaves and disgraced soldiers, Christians and foreigners stood before him and they would argue for their freedom. Pilate had condemned thousands of people to death. So the silence of Jesus is unnerving for him. And I think what Mark is doing here by recording the silence of Jesus is he's making a connection with a prophecy from the Old Testament book of Isaiah that was written five to 600 years before Jesus was born. In Isaiah chapter 53, it's one of the clearest statements in the Old Testament that points ahead to a suffering king, a suffering servant who would come to make people right with God. And this suffering servant would be highly exalted by being beaten and killed. And one of the descriptions of this suffering king in Isaiah 53 is in verse 7, which says, He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. If you're following in your notes, Mark wants us to see Jesus is the suffering servant. He's the servant king from Isaiah. Now let's pull up from this moment for just a moment, Jesus and Pilate and the crowd. Let's pull up from this moment for just a moment and go back to Jesus and Pilate standing face to face. How is Jesus not saying these guys have it all wrong? Would you just listen to me? Because I'm convinced if Jesus would have spoken up, he would have gone free. In the New Testament book of 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 23, we get an inside glimpse of this moment. Peter writes this. You can see it on the screen. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he trusted himself to him who judges justly. If you're following in your notes, Jesus is silent because he entrusted himself to God. 
He entrusted himself to God. And I thought about this this week. What, what Jesus' silence teaches me is that I don't always have to defend myself and I don't always have to have the last word. Like I have the spiritual gift of wanting to have the last word. And, and Jesus teaches us that sometimes that isn't necessary. I was in a conversation with Sarah, my wife this week, and she was saying some things that I just didn't agree with. And, and I found myself thinking, I, I don't agree with that. That's wrong. What you're saying isn't correct. And, and I started feeling like my temperature rise and my shoulders get tight and my jaw was clenched because we feel anxiety in our body before we know what's going on in our brain. And so I'm feeling these things rise to the surface. And in that moment, I think it's only because I was studying this passage, I thought, Brian, you don't have to have the last word on this. You, you don't have to have the last word. I wish I did that all the time. Where do you have to have the last word? Right, when you leave that meeting or you hang up the phone and you stew about something you wish you would have said, can you trust God in that moment? When you finish a conversation with one of your kids and it didn't end with a nice bow on it and you wanna go back in for more, can you trust God that he's at work? Maybe when you're having a discussion with your spouse or a friend, it's not going the way you want it to go and you practice not having to have the last word in that situation, but you listen and ask compassionately curious questions instead. We don't always have to have the last word. Jesus modeled that for us. And we're told in response to Jesus' silence, Pilate's amazed. And it's not this kind of amazed like you're an idiot. It is astonishment. He marvels at this. And I think Pilate's still trying to figure out how to free Jesus. So let's see what he does next in verse six. It says, now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner from the people whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder. Crucify him. Pilate comes up with this plan to utilize a Passover festival tradition letting a prisoner go free. It was a way of endearing himself to the crowd. And I have to think in this moment, Pilate is thinking to himself, there is no way they're going to choose this murderer named Barabbas. There's no way. He had found a way out of a difficult situation. Now we don't know much about Barabbas other than he was in prison for killing Romans during an uprising, which is remember the one thing Pilate is worried about. And we've talked about this during the series, but it's worth remembering that during this time in history, the Jewish people were painfully oppressed by the Romans and they had a passionate desire from freedom, for freedom from this oppressive rule. And so this longing for freedom led to a heightened sense that God was going to send a Messiah, a rescuer, a savior that was talked about in the Old Testament. And this Messiah would be a deliverer a savior of Israel, he would usher in the kingdom of God. 
However, if you're following in your notes, the Jewish people were looking for a savior who was a political and military leader who would bring peace through violence. That's who they were looking for. They were looking for a king who was committed to a violent uprising, not a king who was willing to die. So when it became clear that Jesus was not going to lead that sort of uprising, the crowd that shouted, Hosanna, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Seven days earlier on Palm Sunday, now start to shout, crucify him. Because Jesus didn't meet their expectations. The choice in front of the crowd is Jesus, king of the Jews, or Barabbas. And if we go to the gospel of Matthew real quick, we see that Matthew tells the story this way. It says in Matthew twenty-seven seventeen. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? Do you notice what's different in Matthew's telling of that story? Several of the earliest copies of the New Testament list Barabbas as the surname and Jesus as this man's first name. His name was Jesus Barabbas, which is fascinating. Barabbas, if you're following in your notes, means son of the father. It means son of the father. The the choice Pilate sets before this crowd were both called Jesus, son of the father. One, an innocent man accused of crimes, the other a murderer to be released as an innocent man. In this moment, Barabbas and Jesus are standing before the crowd. There are two forms of messianic expectation and belief that stand in opposition to each other. The choice is between a Messiah who leads an armed struggle, who promises freedom and a kingdom of one's own, And Jesus, who proclaims that dying to oneself is the way to life and experience the kingdom of God. Is it any wonder the crowd prefers Barabbas? One author succinctly puts it this way. Pilate has two Jesuses on his hands. So it wasn't a question of whether or not there was going to be a revolution. The question was which revolution. So I want to stop here and make two applications for us. The first thing I want to draw our attention to, if you're following in your notes, is we choose Barabbas. We choose Barabbas. And the reason we choose him is because we think power and control and our own ideas and our ways are better than the ways of Jesus. We think we know what we need and we'll try to provide it ourselves but it is only through trusting the self-sacrificing Jesus that we will find true life, right? We want the promises of Jesus. We want to know that he will always be with us. He'll never forsake us. He'll provide for us. He will protect us. We just don't want to submit to his authority. We want the kingdom. We just don't want the king. And the second application that we have to know is we are Barabbas. If you're following in your notes, we are Barabbas. And what I mean by that is we are guilty and separated from God because of our sin. In the New Testament letter to the church in Rome, the apostle Paul would write in Romans chapter three, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. 
all have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And that includes us. Mark shows us in this story, one of the clearest pictures in the Bible of what Jesus' death signifies. If you're following in your notes, the story reveals the substitution of an innocent Jesus in place of a guilty Barabbas and us. It's the great exchange. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, we read these words. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, we are healed. Jesus took Barabbas' place. He was taking our place. He was taking our guilt upon himself. He was taking our sins upon himself. He was taking our evil upon himself. He died that we might live. And now I like to do this when I read the Bible and we don't know if what I'm about to say actually happened, but let's use our biblical imaginations. It's legal to do that. I wonder if Barabbas stuck around and watched what happened to Jesus after he was released. And if he did stick around, I wonder if this thought ever went through his mind. That should be me. As Jesus was bound and led away to be flogged, that should be me. As Jesus was nailed to the cross, that should be me. As Jesus hung on the cross with two other criminals on each side, that should be me. That is my cross. Barabbas was set to die that day. Jesus is on his cross. That man is dying in my place. I just wonder if the words that should be me ever went through his mind. Have you ever had that thought when you think about Jesus or read his word? That should be me. Because that acknowledgement provides us with overflowing gratitude and motivation to live the way of Jesus. That should be me. And then in verse 15, the beating and mocking begin. Would you read this with me in the second grade box on your notes? It says, Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The first stop on the way to crucifixion was being flogged or scourged, which is torture, perhaps equally excruciating as crucifixion. And most people didn't even make it to crucifixion. The prisoner would be bound to a pillar or a post and whipped with a leather cord that was attached to pieces of bone or lead or bronze hooks. So when they were whipped, it would just tear away chunks of flesh from the body. One historian claims that even the cruel emperor Domitian was appalled by this practice. This is some of the physical pain that Jesus suffered for you and me. And after the flogging, we're told in verses 16 to 20, the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff. They spit on him, falling on their knees. They paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. They led Jesus to the palace, 
which was by the temple in Jerusalem. It's all so-called the Praetorium or the Antonia Fortress. Let me put a map on the screen just so you can see where we are in the city at this point. During ancient Roman times, the soldiers played a game called the Game of the King. Here are several markings archaeologists have found in Jerusalem where the Antonia Fortress would have been. The way the game was played is that the soldiers would pick one of their own, usually a poor, hapless new recruit, and they would make him the king. See if any of this sounds familiar. They would give him a robe and a crown and a scepter, and they would mock him and pay homage to him. And during the course of the game, the soldiers would roll dice and on some of the spaces they would land on, it would determine who got his clothes, who got his wife, who got his house. The king would make his way around the board until he landed on the killing square where they made a game out of killing him. It was so bad, the emperor banned Roman soldiers from playing this with their own people. It had to be reserved for criminals. Enter Jesus. They mocked him, they spit on him, they fell to their knees and yelled, Hail, King of the Jews, before they led him away to kill him. And I just want us, friends, I want us to consider the irony of these soldiers playing the game of the king with the king of kings. Right, Mark knows what he's doing when he's writing this. He wants the people in Rome and he wants us to know that Jesus is the one true king and they're playing the game of the king with the one true king, the king whose crown was a crown of thorns, the king whose robe was drenched in blood, the king whose coronation was a march from Jerusalem to a hill outside the city to be crucified, the king whose throne was a cross, the king whose teaching is upside down to the ways of this world, the king of peace, not violence, the king whose kingdom will never end, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the king who is worthy to receive all glory and honor and praise. The only king who brings with him the kingdom of God. God help us not play games with the king. So as we close, let me ask a couple questions to help us consider this idea of the king and his kingdom. The first question Have I ever submitted to the rule of King Jesus? Have I ever submitted? Just make that personal. Have I ever submitted to the rule of King Jesus? And I want to be very clear about this. Following Jesus does not mean your life automatically becomes easy. It doesn't mean you won't suffer. In fact, I just submit this to you. Following Jesus is an invitation to suffer. It's a life of self-denial and self-sacrifice. But in that self-sacrifice, you will experience the benefits of the kingdom, like knowing your purpose in life, freedom from sin and bondage and addiction and self-hatred. If you want to experience peace and joy, you need to submit to the king. Following Jesus is the only way to true and abundant life now and forever. The only way to experience the kingdom of God in your life is to submit to the king. Have you ever done that? Have you ever done that? Today can be the day you submit to King Jesus. And you can begin experiencing the kingdom of God. And then the second question Let's make this personal again. If you're following in your notes, are there any areas of my life where I don't allow King Jesus to rule and reign? 
Are there any areas of my life? And, and, and I'm gonna keep talking for just a minute, but let me just give it away. We all have areas in our life where we don't allow King Jesus to rule and reign. Right? Are there any areas of your life where you notice your hands are grasping onto something? There's, there's somewhere in your life where you think or you say, I know what the words of Jesus say, and I know what is required of me to follow Jesus, but I'm not going to submit to that. Right? I'm not going to forgive the person who hurt me. I'm holding on to this grudge. I'm holding on to this anger. I refuse to submit how I use my mouth to tear others down or criticize or complain. I refuse, Jesus, to submit my body to you. You don't get the final word on my sexuality. I refuse to submit my ego, my pride, the way I want to control things. Right? If, you, if you find yourself saying things like, I want a deeper relationship with Jesus, or I want to know God more, I want to experience the kingdom of God in my life, but it just isn't happening and you don't think he's there. Or there's any areas in your life where you're discontent, you're burdened, you're stressed, you're fearful, you are angry. Then perhaps, this isn't always the case, but perhaps there's an area of your life you're unwilling to submit to the king. And what I've discovered, this is a daily practice. Any given day, there are different things that I wanna grasp onto and be my own king. I'll never forget Jeff telling a story of crusaders in the Middle Ages being baptized before they were sent to war and kill people in the name of Christ. They would be baptized and as they went under the water, they would hold their sword above the water. And what they were saying is, I submit to you, Jesus, except this one thing. And in holding this one thing up out of the water, they really weren't submitting at all. And so I just wanna ask us today to consider, is there anything we're holding out of the water? Is there anything we're unwilling to submit to the king? We always wanna provide a moment of silence and solitude and contemplation to consider what God is saying to us because I believe the Holy Spirit is always speaking if we slow down enough to listen. And so I want to invite you to consider these two questions. Have you ever submitted to the king? And is there something right now as you are gathered here that you're holding on to? or that's hard to submit. Now I want you to pay attention to that because that might be how God is speaking to you. Pay attention to that. And when that comes to mind, just offer that to God in prayer. Offer that to him. Ask him to give you the desire and the delight to live under his authority and his kingship. So take the next several moments and listen for the voice of God.
God, if there is anybody here who has just submitted to you as king for the first time, I pray that they would experience your presence right now. They would experience the love of the king and that they now are a son or daughter of the father. God, would they know that? And God, we declare this is hard. It is hard to let go and it is hard to trust. Help us remember who you are and your promises and how faithful you have been to us. That your faithfulness in the past can help us trust you into the future. That you are a good king. That your intentions are good for us. That you love us with an everlasting love. God, would you, would you help us be able to say on a daily basis, Jesus, you are the king of my life. You're the king of my life. Hail King Jesus. God, we love you. Thanks for allowing us to gather, to open your word, to sing, and be reminded of who you are. It's in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's teaching. If you'd like more info on our church, you can visit our website or find us on Facebook.